The, uh, the scriptures that we started uh, studying, we picked up again last week after being off for a couple of months, uh, was 1 Timothy 3. And so we're going to finish on one particular phrase that we started last week. The scripture says, coming from Paul to Timothy, it's a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. And so last week we started to uh, gather some thoughts around the fact that what it means to be able to teach, because clearly in our Western form of teaching, we think of teachers as the person who's pretty skilled standing in front of a group of people. And so I challenge us to think of coming from a, uh, an ancient or an Eastern culture that that wouldn't necessarily be the dynamic that Paul was saying that Timothy needed to find. You know, find the best speakers, find the people that have the best handle on the material and aren't going to be jostled about in front of a crowd when the students start asking questions. Those could certainly be a piece or a part of what Paul was looking for when he said, Timothy, you need to find teachers to help you lead this church. But he was looking for something a little bit deeper. He was looking for the type of teacher who's willing to share the life's experiences of the student. And instead of being um, um, hyper to take a concentrated period of time and say, I've only got this student for one day a week and it's only for a semester, but somebody that was more willing to go through the grind of life to, to sort of um, to, to contain their involvement a little closer to the chest in order to be able to be involved at a deeper level with fewer people as opposed to on a, on a hit and run basis with many people. And so Timothy's starting to get a picture of who he needs to find, partly because Timothy was facing some severe challenges in the church that Paul left him in charge with. And Timothy, we understand from the scriptures, is on the younger side of his life. And so even more concerned for Paul to say, you need wisdom around you. Remember, we talked about last week that that uh, there was this convergence of of life skills that came together in the ideal teacher. I told you that I saw all of those life skills or many of those life skills coming together in the Middle Earth figure called Gandalf. I won't stick on him. I didn't even bring the picture this week. Okay, I won't even show you the picture. But understanding that in order to have wisdom, it's a balance of many things that come into one person's life, an accumulation of skills, but also the wisdom to know when to exercise certain skills and when to refrain from exercising those skills. We summed it up in one word, and that word was maturity. So in order to be a biblical teacher, I don't mean just somebody who just teaches the Bible, but I mean a teacher according to Paul's definition the one that Timothy needed to find, he needed to find mature individuals who were able to spend life with the student to a reasonable extent to see to it that, that they started to um, um, mature, they started to grow in their faith and their understanding of what the principles of God's word meant to them on a daily basis, how it fit their context, because as you know, our contexts are different. So Paul is encouraging Timothy to, to sort this out. Don't just take anybody willing to raise their hand and say, oh, people need to hear what I have to say. There's probably a good reason to avoid that teacher. Instead, somebody who is walking through life with a balance, somebody who is mature. 
And this is a maturity that is more than age. As I had just said, Timothy himself was a young man. So if Paul is saying, Timothy, it's very important for you to find mature teachers, he wouldn't have left Timothy in charge of the church if it were all about age. Timothy's challenges were, besides his age, besides his youth, were that he was trying to minister to the same people that watched him grow up. Even Jesus said a prophet is unwelcome in his own town. So imagine, if you will, uh, you know, somebody saying, uh, I, I've got this calling on my life and um, I'm going to go and get some training and then I'm going to come back to the folks that saw me pick my nose and saw me beat up the kid down the street and they're supposed to take me seriously as a man of God. And it's hard for us to do that. It's hard for us to take the child out of the context, if you will. To say, well, now we're, we're supposed to trust that this is a responsible, mature man. After I know who this kid is. Saw him grow up down the street. They even, uh, uh, the, the, the people even resisted Jesus' ministry when he went back to his own town. Because even though he was perfect growing up, although wouldn't you have loved to have seen the video of like, you know, does a sinless person still get kind of, you know, agitated in a baseball game? You know, playing with the... I know there's no baseball in ancient Israel, but still, understand. You know, what? How, how does that work? And so Jesus grew up as a boy right in front of their eyes. And so when they came back, they said, really, isn't this Mary and Joseph's son? And he's supposed to be healing everybody. He's the king of the Jews. Okay. Who's next? Sammy from around the block. He's going to be president. It just doesn't fit for us. It's hard for us to accept that some that God could use somebody uh, to such great extent that we saw growing up in a very normal context that we're all familiar with. And then to boot, Timothy had the struggle of his biggest fan, if you will, was somebody who was living miles and miles and miles away, writing letters on rare occasion. And so Timothy, instead of having like a hype team, you know, somebody's like, yeah, Timothy's the man and having all this stuff. All he had was Paul and Paul was stuck in Macedonia and Timothy's trying to lead this church without somebody that everybody respected saying, you can get behind this guy. It was a very difficult thing for him to do. So just the normal um, structure and the normal situation of life that Timothy was in created quite a challenge. But now let's add on top of all of those difficulties the mess of how they were handling the Word of God and the heresy that was starting to brew in the church that he was trying to lead. You know, it's one thing if everyone was showing up and they were giving like the Sunday school answers, they knew all the songs and Timothy's like, this is pretty cool. I get to put a service together. I get to preach. Um, you know, someone's going to cook me a meal afterwards and stuff. And, you know, I'll visit with the, with the elderly and I'll do that kind of like manage sort of just the, the club mindset of church. You could say, well, Timothy will grow into it. He'll enjoy that and he'll, he'll get a little wiser over time. But instead, Timothy was met face to face with, with all of these strange heresies that were starting to develop. It's not a, a, a heresy that is really difficult for us to relate to, unfortunately. Uh, there was this thing growing uh, within the, the converted Christians where they were saying, you know, some of our traditions, the Judaism stuff, some of it wasn't all that bad. So we're not going to let go of all of it. We're going to drag some of it into our context here. And while we're worshiping Jesus, we're also going to say, well, do we have to throw everything out? And so not that there's anything entirely wrong with looking at tradition, but what it was starting to create in them was a, a lot of confusion. And Timothy's like, why wouldn't you just start new and fresh with your life in Christ and let him spell out the rest? Well, there's things that we liked, that we missed from the old synagogue. 
There's things that we like that, that we, we don't feel like we should, we should ditch them and stuff. And so Timothy's trying to get them on track in their new life in Christ, and they want to hold on to the past. And then also there was this strange thing brewing with them where they were starting to see, let's see if this makes sense, they were starting to see everything that came as a result of the Spirit was good, and everything that came uh, in the flesh or in the actual body that you lived in was absolutely bad. Now, on the surface, theologically, you might say, I don't think that's really a problem, right? Everything in the Spirit is born of the Spirit. Everything that we are born in in our flesh is tainted with sin, so why wouldn't it be bad? But let's think about this for a second. Every desire that you have, because it's generated from the body, is it necessarily ungodly? How many of you ate breakfast this morning? Okay, the rest of you, shame on you. Most important meal of the day. We woke up this morning, most of us, with a, with a desire that was built within our flesh to provide nourishment so that we could move on and accomplish the things that we were set out to accomplish for the day. So it was getting to such extreme that any desire that was sort of natural, if you will, that came from the flesh, they wanted to crucify it and shove it out and say this is... So it started turning into like flogging and I'm going to repress any uh, fleshly desire in my life rather than looking at the reality of the situation is that God gives us very good things that the sinfulness of man has distorted and used for their own purpose and those things have to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. So the simple theology is, okay, God's built me with things right from creation that he intended for good, that in the perfect garden, we're going to provide for my needs. We're going to support the lives of people around me. And they were ultimately going to be, be uh, they were going to give praise to God. But when sin entered the equation and there was that rip in, in, uh, in, uh, in, in all of history, which means now everybody born after Adam has this desire to use all of those things for our own wicked purposes. So if we don't manage the things that God gave us from a pure starting point, they become an issue for us. That's why in the month of January we diet. Because in all of 2014 we said, boy, I was really gluttonous. The thing that God gave me as a, as a desire to enjoy the food of the, of the ground that he, that he grew and, and the, the meat that he provided, all the things that he said were good are a normal desire that God has built within everybody in creation. But because sin entered the equation, all of us now want to use that for our own selfish purposes. So yes, it does need to be managed, if you will, but it's managed by the Holy Spirit. It isn't by our own power. If we can just keep whipping ourselves, we can beat ourselves out of these desires. And it's probably not a good thing that we could, if we could. God meant for those desires to be used for good. So go down the list of all the things that man abuses because they, they are being uh, uh, ruled by a sinful flesh. But how many of those things were things that God said, I gave you those things to be good in your life? So here's Timothy trying to weigh through these things and saying, I've got all these people that, this is the part that we can relate to. I've got all these people that are coming saying, well, you're just not holy enough. That's what your problem is. You're too tainted by the world. You're too open to sinful uh, intrusion of the world. We're more spiritual because we do with less. Now think about how familiar that is to us. You know, sometimes those are the hardest Christians 
to, to work with because they have put themselves and the things that they can do without on a pedestal that if you don't do the same thing, you're not as holy. And so Timothy is dealing with a, an overly self-righteous kind of um, showy uh, environment that says we are better than everybody else because we can do without. We suppress these desires. But somebody who lives in grace acknowledges that these desires were given to us by God, but they can be so evilly twisted for our own purposes. Let's put it this way. The things that we want in life become idolatrous when we want them more or faster than God is willing to provide for us. Let me ask you something. The thing that you want in life, is it in itself inherently bad? Think about the thing that's on the top of your list. Is it inherently bad? Or is it just because you want it so much, you keep getting ahead of God's plan for you to have it or in the right way that he wants you to have it? So that ends up causing all kinds of, tr- of trouble in your life. Think about that. What am I willing What do I want so bad that I'm willing to sin in order to have it? And that is what is the revealer of idolatry in our life. Uh, Those of you that know your Old Testament, what does God do with idols? What do you think he does with idols? Anyone? Destroys them. Smashes them. I see more and more people suffering under the weight of destroyed idols because they're so let down by God. How could he do this to me? How could he take away the thing that I wanted so badly? It's not a bad thing. How could he take this out of, out of my reach? And, it's, and, and if we slow down and we look at the process and, and how that person went about trying to get that, we quickly see that God was saying, no, wait, it's not that it's bad that you want this. I'm probably the one that gave you the desire in the first place. The problem is you want it in your way and in your uh, time frame. You want it in your manner. You're not listening to what I'm saying about what's good for you. So I have to get rid of it. I have to smash it. And so does that make God a big meanie or does it make him gracious by saying, you might be able to have this again once you learn this lesson? Because idols always let us down. And he knows this. And he's trying to spare us more heartache. Timothy is trying to engage people in this way as a young man whose biggest fan is way off in Macedonia is sending the occasional letter. And Paul is trying to say to him, don't slow down just because you feel like you're up against it. Don't slow down just because it's so extreme. uh, The challenge is so extreme. He says later on in this letter, in, in this first letter, he says, don't let anyone think less of you because you're young. Be an example to all believers in what you say, in the way you live, in your love, your faith and your purity. Going back to what it means to be a teacher in terms of what the Bible says being a teacher is all about, a mature person knows that in order to see principles duplicated in somebody else's life, they need to take the time to spend life with them beyond the lecture. We could do a mass push in here at Faith for more teachers. We need more teachers, 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 teachers. 
And some of you would recoil at that because you say, I don't really do well in front of crowds and I trip over my tongue and, and I'm not willing to look like as big of an idiot as Brent is and that sort of thing. And so you, you, you say, I'm not that kind of teacher, so therefore I can't teach. But see, this is why I think Paul is taking that, that, that excuse like a rug and pulling it right from out, out from under our feet. Because what he intended was people that said, somebody needs the lessons that I've learned and I'm willing to spend a portion of my life in order to share those lessons. It may not ever be in a classroom setting. The leader does not have to be a great speaker. Biblical teaching is more about discipleship of the individual than it is about instructing massive amounts of people. Sometimes we need both, don't we? I mean, Sunday morning, our environment here is you're here and you're, you're all ears and you're engaged and, and we, we do the worship music in front because it helps prepare our thoughts. We, we walked in here with a lot of world hanging on us, didn't we? We walked in here with very heavy backpacks of all the situations that we're carrying and, and focusing on our praise and listening to the music adjusts our, our mood and there's something that God does through melody. It's not a gimmick. It's not a trick in order to, uh, to spell out what we want you to hear. It's because we all need sort of a re-engagement of our mind. And, and even though the worship is vertical and we're singing our praises to the Lord, He communicates with us and helps us, helps us kind of set our hearts at peace and at ease. So that when the preaching of the word comes, we might, we might be perhaps more open to receiving it. Sunday morning or whatever a church chooses for their corporate worship time is an extremely effective tool for you and I to, to uh, engage with the Lord and to hear the teaching that he has for us. But it was never meant to be all that you receive. Sunday morning is, if you will, sort of a, of a catalyst. It's the kind of thing that's hoping to throw gas on your fire because what, what the Lord could do at faith with everybody sitting in these chairs saying, okay, I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm, I'm coming, I'm participating with people. It's my best opportunity to see more people that I don't get a chance to see throughout the week. I am here for the purpose of, of, of singing my praises to the Lord. He'd hear me anywhere. So it's not like he hears me better because faith has microphones or something. He'd hear me anywhere, but I get to do this corporately with my brothers and sisters. It encourages them that I'm here. I'm encouraged that they're here. Sunday morning is a great strengthening, reinforcing tool, but it is not meant to be where you gain the majority of your walk with the Lord, the majority of your discipleship in Christ. That would be like saying, um, um, uh, if you have a, a part to fix on a car, um, the, all you have to do is to get the, the manual. And some of you guys swear by this. Steve Bossy. Uh, all you have to do is open up the manual and it should make sense to you. It makes sense to Steve because he's smart. He tells me to do the same thing. I'm like, what page was I supposed to be on? I don't even know where to go. So he's like, I'll be over soon. So he comes over. So imagine if, if Sunday were sort of like Here's the manual. This is what the manual says. Now go out and do it. And you're going, it doesn't seem to work the same for me on Monday morning as Pastor Bill or Brent said it did or was supposed to on Sunday. Sunday is a very specific purpose, a very limited purpose in the life of the believer. Discipleship, what happens after Sunday, is more like that person saying, okay, I'll be right over. And then they hold the wrenches with you. They do the tool change, you know, the uh, parts changing and all that stuff. And you go, okay, I get it now. I was on the wrong side of the car. That's why I, I was messing it up. 
So it's those sorts of things that discipleship, somebody who's willing to teach on a daily basis and share life with somebody, that's when the Christian life starts to click. One of the reasons why we have small groups and we, and we put so much effort into our small group uh, training here at Faith, Pastor Ron was telling me recently, he likes to spend three months with anybody who says, I'll lead a small group. You'll run across a lot of churches that are like, hey, we'll take the most able, willing body, and if they seem to know the Word of God, then we'll just kind of put them in front of people. If they're willing, and they're, let's send them. But we have this concern here that uh, we want to make sure that there's purity in doctrine. We want to make sure that our small groups, for the most part, are operating with a, a sense of, of confidence that the direction we're going is one that honors the Lord and it's, it's in tune with the leadership of faith and that sort of stuff. And so more time is spent to train quality leaders. And we have uh, lots of, uh, of reasons for that. But uh, for the most part, we've enjoyed a pretty healthy percentage of small group participation at faith. It's uh, probably around a 40 percent um, uh, population rate based on how many of you show up here on a Sunday morning. So that's really good for a church to be able to say. So my first question is, so why isn't it 50? Why isn't it 75? Why don't we have more of that going on? Our best opportunity for that life on life discipleship is going to happen when you meet someone you can trust. When you meet somebody that will call you up and say, how's it going with changing that part? Or it will be that person that you have them on speed dial and say, I need help changing that part. And of course, the part is the metaphor, what we're talking about for the things that are broken in our life. That somebody else who's walking with the Lord can help us to, to, uh, to apply the principles that the Lord is teaching us. Let me give you the age-old cliche in this, in this spot right here, that the principles for life are caught, not just taught, Right? And in order to catch these principles, you need to be around people who are living them. All of that from one little phrase, able to teach. But wait, there's more. In Titus 1.9, Paul also writes, he says, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will, clue on in this phrase here, be able to, both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So yes, we're talking about somebody who's willing to spend life with somebody else, somebody who's willing to get involved and not be isolated, but you also have to kind of know the Word of God too. That's why we're emphasizing in terms of our small group training and other things, not just sending people out there, but what Paul is saying, it's okay to engage our brains too. You know, uh, somebody uh, once gave me, it must have been a Chinese proverb or something, that some, uh, he who thinks he's leading with nobody following is merely taking a walk. And there's a principle at play there that he who thinks he's leading but isn't doing any instructing is just being a buddy, is just being a friend. And there's a place for that. Just like there's a place for Sunday morning. But sometimes in life we need somebody to step up and be a little bit more than just a friend. Or by friend, I mean somebody who's just willing to support with their presence. It's an extremely valuable gift to have somebody who's able to just be there with you when you're going through uh, all kinds of things. Uh, one of the great balances I saw of this in my life was somebody who, in, in high school, uh, we always thought of him as the brainiac. You know, he, um, uh, he just had, he had a big head and a big brain that filled it. He was smart as can be. 
and he was getting, you know, straight A's and we knew he'd be an engineer and he ended up being an engineer and stuff. And, and uh, it was just always we counted on his intellect in so many things. So it was strange for me to see a balance in maturity coming from a junior in high school when, um, well, no, it was, it was way beyond high school, sorry, uh, when my father had passed. And uh, I was trying to, you know, of course, the way it goes, right? When you're expecting somebody to pass in a certain way, it never goes the way you're hoping or expecting it to or the timing of things. I had been spending this whole week out of school in college to be near my father's bedside. And so I needed to return a car to my friend back in Boston. So I said, I'm going to zing down there and he's going to drive me back. By the time I got down to the school is when my folks called me. My mom and my grandmother called me and said, he's gone. So I'm, you know, trying to get back. And of course, you know, the tolls in New Hampshire are like we're sitting there for an hour and a half. And my poor friend who's driving me home is like, I don't know what to say to this guy. I don't know what to say. I don't. So we're sitting in silence, you know. I get all the way back home hours and hours later and, and sort of everything's felt like it's kind of moved on. My father's no longer there. The hospital bed's cleaned out. It's just different for me. I was just there this morning. I just saw him breathing and now he's gone and they're already looking through photo albums, starting to laugh. You know how you do sometimes when you're trying to just soak in the emotion and deal with what's going on and stuff. And so I'm sitting there on this couch looking at an empty bed. They're all in the other room giving me my time and my space and I'm just sort of processing all this or trying to. And then boom, 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 knock comes on the door and it's my friend who had heard what was going on and he came in and all he did was sit on that couch next to me. I mean, this is a guy who was probably maybe 20 years old at best and was wise enough in the moment to shut his mouth and to stare at that bed with me. And, and so many years later, I still remember that. And now I think about that whenever I'm in a situation with some of you folks or I think about you know needing to be with somebody who's going through stuff that sometimes you just need that friend to be there to not say anything. That's where maturity comes in. But if it just stopped there, eventually I needed somebody to give me hope. I needed somebody to share God's plan with me. I needed somebody to tell me that uh, the pieces that I was going to miss in my life and all that kind of stuff were going to be filled by the Lord. And I needed somebody to explain and to, and to help me experience those things, but not right at that moment. And so a teacher is somebody who has the balance, that maturity. And what God's saying to us when he's saying you have to be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and be ready to go against those that are contradicting truth is you have to know when to do that or when not to do that. Or as now we're seeing the resurrection of Kenny Rogers song in the Geico commercial, you've got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, right? Know when to walk away. Have you guys seen that commercial? It's hysterical. So... We've got to know the balance of those things. And I know probably this is having the opposite effect on some of you. You're like, well, now how can I be a teacher? I don't know how to do all those things. I don't, I don't have this kind of this timing meter inside of me that says this is when not to speak and then this is when to speak and when it's time to speak, you know exactly what argument to share and all that kind of stuff. The, the point isn't whether or not you're ready right this second. The point is, are you willing to be ready soon or later? I am fully convinced that the Lord is doing something at Faith Evangelical Free Church that is different than we've experienced in a long time, and I don't know all the reasons for that. But I hear from person after person, I don't know, I feel like the Lord's nudging me. 
We have a couple of young guys that approached us, some of us on staff here that are by themselves fairly introvert guys. Real nice and people like being around them, but they're not real showy or not real vocal and stuff. And they've come to us and said, we just want to start getting a little sharper in the word. We want to be more engaged and maybe leading a group. And I'm looking at them going, really? Your personality? This is great. You know, if you can come out of your shell, then everyone's got hope, you know. And so we're starting to see these kinds of things kind of percolating, you know. And, and I just want, I just bring this before the Lord all the time. Lord, whatever we can do to sort of throw gas on that fire, whatever we can do to encourage that con- to continue. But ultimately, it rests in your heart as you sit before the Lord and say, Lord, am I willing to make 2015 a year that I am going to engage in somebody's life? There isn't a program that we can come up with or thousands of dollars that we can go spend that's going to plug into faith that's going to go, oh, now we can get off our seats. Now we can lead. Now we can teach or anything. If you're hesitant, bring that before the Lord and say, Lord, why am I hesitant? What do you want to do in me? Remember what we talked about here is that the context of this scripture is specifically to find men to fill the office of elder and pastor in the church. But I believe that if we only apply it that far and we stop there, we're, we're, we're dying on the vine as a church. The church is never meant to be about one particular person's personality. The church is never meant to be about um, uh, a, a slick program or a great building or any of those kinds of things. If that's what we're building our success on, we're already dying. But I don't believe that's what the Lord's doing. And so I just ask you to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit this morning. Lord, what are the reasons that I would be holding back my willingness to engage with somebody else this year that I'm, already, I'm not already engaged with? To be prepared in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. 2 Timothy 2.15 also says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Teaching requires us to use our brains. It requires our willingness to share our lives. And if the Lord tarries and maybe, uh, and if Pastor Bill still is giving his doctors a hard time, then maybe next week we'll talk about a little bit of the effort that's, a re, uh, that's required in order to move forward as a teacher. I, I feel it's very important to camp on this phrase in 1 Timothy 3 because I believe this is part of the next wave, if you will, of what the Lord wants to do in our church is to raise up teachers, not just lecturers, but life-on-life teachers. Would you stand as we close in prayer? I hope you're praying for these things too. Remember, just beyond Sunday to bring these things up to the Lord. God, we want to thank you, Lord, for this great church that you've given to us. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the mechanics that we are allowed to enjoy that help us to focus our worship. Silly little things, but important things in northern Maine like heat that runs and all the tangible blessings, Lord, that you've given to us. But God, more importantly than all of these things, we want to be a people on fire for you and we want to see change in this area. We pray, God, that you would make us servants willing to grow in your word but also willing to share that growth with the people around us. So challenge us, Lord, shake our trees, and give us, Lord, the faith to take the next step. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.